0: Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as you do, we're well, welcome. Uh, we are so glad to have you uh, with us today. If you uh, would like to, you're welcome to to lower your mask uh, during the duration of the sermon. And then we'll collectively put them back on um, when it's time to sing and to fellowship uh, again. But before we dive into the text, I want to open with an announcement um, and um, a prayer uh, request. Uh, several of you over... Uh, Recent weeks have asked whether or not we've ever considered looking at the uh, the American Legion building uh, downtown as a potential uh, permanent facility. And just to be honest, until um, until those conversations, the answer was no. I like, had never, never thought about it. Um, um, wasn't a facility that I can speak personally that ever crossed my mind um, and had never come up in any conversations that I had been a part of until it kept coming up. Um, in conversations. And so, to be fair, um, I think even with like Patrick's kind of just saying, hey, I think we need to go, we check this out. Um, we, we went and we, we checked out uh, the American Legion building a, a, as elders. And it, while it certainly requires a, a lot of work, um, we honestly walked away from it saying, okay, this building has potential. Um, there is potential with this facility. And lots and lots of questions, but potential. And so, potential is something you have to continue to move forward and see what comes of it. It um, was even potential with the price, which is always a factor in anything. But the biggest question was, okay, how do we get the answers to our questions so so we, as a congregation, we as members of this body, can can truly make an informed decision? Like, how how do we do that? Because. We're talking about the need of it for inspections. We're talking about the need of of cost analysis, uh, renovations, um, like loan information, actual seating capacity, functionality. I mean, all these different things. It's not stuff that you can just do overnight, right? There's a lot of questions that take time to be able to be answered. So we asked Marcy Deck uh, to explore um, our options, options that would... uh, really leave us with as little, if any, financial commitment at all. So we wanted to be able to say, okay, we want to get our questions answered, but we don't want to have to put any real financial commitment forward to get those questions answered. Um, And so after she talked with the other real estate agent, we were presented with an option of a contingency contract. And most of us are familiar with contingencies and contracts, but it's basically meaning that we would negotiate on on the contract on the sale um, of the building based upon a a lot of contingencies. First and foremost, uh, being congregational approval. Um, so we're, we're very, very clear um, in contract and all of this that final authority of any purchase um, rests exclusively with the members of this body as a whole. This isn't a decision that we as elders can or even desire to make on, uh, make on our own. If the congregation doesn't vote to, uh, to affirm, then that's, then that's that. Uh, other contingencies that, that fall in place, um, a large part are, are just: can we afford it? Like, can we afford the renovations and everything? And does it work and meet our needs, so on and so forth? And so, we we asked for in, in the contract to have time to be able to gather this information. And so, we have as of uh, this past Tuesday, we have uh, entered into a sixty-day contingency contract. Um, with the American Legion building, which means we're the first in line with an agreed upon offer uh, to to buy the building if and only if all the contingencies then fall in place. And so what we want to do over the course of the the next 60 days, which clock's already ticking on that, is explore whether or not this is a viable option. Is it or, or isn't it? So that, that's where uh, kind of where we find ourselves. If it is, we, and we, we are all in agreement, then we move forward. If it's not, then we won't. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of questions that go through that. And you may even be like me in this moment and being like, really? Like, you realize there's a pandemic going on and you want to add like one more thing to the equation in all of this? And I like, don't have enough on our plate right now. And i like, I get that. Um, but, you know, the more I pray about it, the more we as elders, you know, prayed about it and talked about it. Like who are we to limit the timing of God's plan uh, just to when it's convenient to us? Um, so, I, I'm, I'm asking all of us to, to begin praying now intentionally for the Lord's will to be made known, um, to be made known abundantly clear in the days ahead. Um, and we'll be providing more information, more detailed information as it comes available. Uh, but that's where we're at at the moment. Um, just beginning to to gather the information. Now, again, you're going to have questions. We've got questions. Feel free to ask those questions. Um, It may be something that we haven't thought about in the process. David is really going to be handling a lot of the the conversations with contractors and gathering that information for us. So um, anything involving those questions, feel free to ask David. Sorry, David, just pointing it directly to you um, there. But... uh, Anyway, that's that big announcement. Um, I want to be excited, but at the same time, I want to be patient. And I want to just be prayerful um, and see where, where all of this leads. But let's go to, the Lord's prayer, go to the Lord in prayer once again. And let's dive into what I feel most comfortable doing, um, preaching God's word. All right, let's, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we have long desired a permanent facility to call our own. And we ask that you will give us the desire of our hearts. Now, as it pertains to this particular facility, we have many questions. Thus, we ask in the days ahead that you will make your will clearly known to us. And whether the answer is yes or whether the answer is no, let us give you praise and continue to trust in you and your providential timing. But now, as we open your word, we ask that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive today. Be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, with verses four through six, we, we looked at God the Father's role in, salva- in the salvation of sinners. That is how sinners are established in Christ. And what do we learn when we looked at God the Father's role in salvation? Well, that it was his plan. It was his idea. Before the foundation of the world, he chose undeserving sinners to be united to him in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. All of this being done to what? To the praise of his glorious grace. Then last week, we we turned over and and began to look at the role of God the Son in in God the Father's eternal plan. And what did we learn as we looked at the role of God the Son? Verse 7, there before us. That in Him, we, we who are in Christ, have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So God the Father redeeming both Jews and Gentiles, just a little note there, a Gentile being anyone who is not Jewish. So again, God the Father redeeming both Jews and Gentiles, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations through the blood of Christ. This being God's plan for the fullness of time, all things being united together in Christ. And here's what's awesome. Church, this, this is what it's like when you really stop and you think about how big of a deal this is. It, this is happening right now. The, the unification is happening right now through the church of which Christ is the head. And what we want to look at today is, okay, how? How are all things being united together in Christ through the church? And to get our answer to this question, this is where we have to turn our attention to the third person of the Trinity. We have to turn our attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in God's eternal plan of salvation. So look with me first at the first part of verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now the in him is in Christ Christ. In him alone, in Christ alone, our hope is found. As Acts 4.12 teaches us, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the we here in this, the we here referring to both Jews and Gentiles again, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. If we've been united together by the blood of Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We, united together in Christ, have obtained an inheritance. And in the original Greek, we don't go there often, but the original Greek we have obtained an inheritance is actually just one big compound word. Which, as you can imagine, makes that really hard uh, for some translation issues. Makes that kind of difficult, bringing forth really two possible translations. One being, just as it reads here in the ESV, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And even if you're not reading from the ESV, yours likely says, in him we have obtained an inheritance or something of the sort. Now, the other option uh, of translation is in him we were made an inheritance. We were made a heritage, which is the means of we are becoming Christ's inheritance, which is clearly a theme that we have seen running throughout the Old Testament, right? That, That God's people are God's possession. We even see Jesus in the New Testament speaking of believers as being gifts that the Father has given him. Like all that the Father has given me will come to me. So let's be clear, both translations, they're great biblical options. They're both great options. You really can't go, go wrong here. And I can easily find myself kind of going back and forth between the two because we are God's possession if we are in Christ. And through Christ, we have received a glorious inheritance. Both are true. But now, what does all of this mean practically speaking? It means we who are in Christ are in Christ to the fullest. Like we can't be in Christ any more than we are in Christ if we are in Christ. Say that 10 times fast, right? We are his and he is ours. As verse 3 tells us, look back at verse 3. We who are in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. If we are in Christ, we inherit every promise God has ever made. Think about that for a moment. If we are in Christ, we inherit every promise that God has ever made. Why? Because every promise finds its fulfillment in who? In Jesus. In Christ. So from his promise of peace to his promise of love, ours. His promise of grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, ours right now midst of all that we're going through joy promise ours victory strength ours guidance power oh mercy Ours forgiveness, ours righteousness, ours truth, ours fellowship with God, a promise to fellowship with him, ours, spiritual discernment, ours, heaven, eternal riches, glory, ours, and every other good thing that comes from God, all ours, if we are in Christ, as romans eight seventeen reminds us, if we are children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Oh, my friends, brothers and sisters, ours. But now here's the question. Why? Why would all of this be ours? Two reasons. Verse 11. He predestined to do so according to the purpose of his will. So it's a part of his eternal plan, God's eternal plan to bless us in the heavenlies, to give us this inheritance. God the Father has always desired to bless us in Christ. And when I say always, we mean like always, before the foundation of the world. But again, we ask, why? (laughs) Like, I know me, you know you, we know one another. We have to look at each other and be like, why? Why would he bless you? Why would he bless me? Why would he bless us? Verse 12, so that. Oh, I love it when he does that, right? And like just For the purpose of, he's telling us, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's a theme running all throughout God's glorious plan. God doing everything he does to bring glory to himself. But Jeremy, that, that sounds just so selfish. Like, it sounds so selfish, like... God doing everything for his glory? And let's just admit, from a human perspective, that does sound selfish. If we did everything for our glory and for our joy, <laughs> that would no doubt be deemed selfish, right? Can you imagine how a home would work and function, a society, if we do everything just for our own pleasure? Uh, but not so of God. Why? Because who is more worthy of glory than God? I mean, it sounds like a simple, no-brainer question there. But like really, ask yourself, who is worthy of more glory than God? No one. And if God were to aim all his focus to glorify another, then what would it mean? That there was one higher and more worthy of glory than God. And there isn't. He alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. But then he still is blessing us. Look at verse 5. Why were we adopted? According to the purpose of his will, yes. But verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we receive our inheritance or we become his inheritance. Why? Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Meaning we receive all the blessings we receive in Christ for the glory of God. God does all that he does with the purposes of his will to bring himself the most glory. He gives us new life for his glory. Which begs the question, are our lives being lived to the fullest for the glory of God? Is the glory of God the chief aim in all that we do? we're being honest we're going to say no right because our sinful hearts are corrupted and we want what we want when we want it all of that but we do still have to ask why and we get to the heart of our sin and we got to be clear we all have a long way to go in this but it's not an excuse it's not an excuse to be able to, like, ah, I'm not perfect, I'm not God, I'm never gonna be, reach that. Like, this is something we should ab- desire to uh, obtain. We wanna live for the glory of God. And if it's not our aim, it's not our desire, we really need to ask why. Is it our overwhelming desire? Like, I have an overwhelming desire for, for a lot of different things that I have trouble obtaining. Is the glory of God one of them? Do I desire with overwhelming desire to live my life, your life, for the glory of God? If not, why? There's a heart issue in play there. Now, a couple of things before zeroing in on the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 12 where it says, We who are the first to hope in Christ. What does that mean? Well, quite simply, they were the first to believe in Jesus as their only hope in life and in death. Paul including himself in, in this number. So this is referring to, to first generation Christians at the start of the church in and around Jerusalem. So most would have been Jewish. But now look at verse 13. In him you also. Okay. Who is the you also? This is referring to those who have come to faith since then with the advancement of the gospel, which includes Gentiles, meaning all of us are going to fall under the you also. Paul once again highlighting the unity we who are in Christ have as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. Jews and Gentiles united together equally in Christ. And this brings us back to our overarching question of the day, which is, how does God unite us in him? How is the church being used in this function? Yes, Christ works redemption. Work of redemption is what justifies us, right? Getting real technical here. Justification, meaning how we're declared right before God. But okay, now how do we receive this justification? Essentially, how are we saved? Church, we know how to answer this question in a very simplistic way. How how are we saved, church? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. I love when little kids' heads pop up at that moment in time and they start repeating along. It's like, yes, yes, but. Today I'm pressing beyond that. I'm pressing into that a little bit further. Like, what must happen to make faith possible in a life of a sinner? In the spiritually dead And the child of wrath, as Ephesians scripture calls us, enemies of God. How how do we, who have no desire for God, develop a desire for God? We who have no desire to, to glorify God, have no desire to believe in God, where does that come from? The simple answer is the work of the Holy Spirit. So read verses 13 and 14 with me again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So three things, starting with, number one, in order to be redeemed, you must hear the gospel. In order to be redeemed, you must hear the gospel. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Implication being, hearing is absolutely essential to believing. Now, a couple things here. There's no limit. One, first thing here, there's no limit to the number of times one must have to hear. Some people now, they hear one time and they believe. It's rare, but it happens. Never heard the gospel before. They're presented with the truth of the gospel, and immediately they repent of their sins and they believe. Others take hundreds and hundreds of times before they believe. And still there are others who, who grow up maybe in the exact same home, hearing the exact same message hundreds and hundreds of times, and they never believe. But I dare say for most of us who are in Christ, we likely have heard or heard the gospel many, many times, whether we even realized it or not, before we came to faith in Christ, before we believed. So we've got to give praise to God for For those who allowed us the opportunity to be able to hear, whether it's uh, our parents or grandparents or or teachers or friends or children's workers or pastors or co-workers or neighbors or strangers or whatever means that might have been. Those who were faithful enough to make it possible for us to hear the gospel or reminder to us to never stop proclaiming the gospel or think that our words don't matter. We may not see the fruit in the immediate, oh, but they matter. Two, hearing doesn't automatically equal audibly hearing. Now this may sound like a no brainer to you, but I've, get, I've gotten this question more times than I can count. Because like, somebody says, well, what about the person who can't hear? Like, what about, like, do you have to actually hear it audibly? And like, it's some tor- sort of mystical thing. And that's just not the case. So instead of audibly hearing, it could be uh, the gospel presented in writing. It could be that you're reading a book or better yet, the book, (laughs) the Bible. Like you you pick up the Bible and you begin to read it. Like I can't help but think of all the stories that I've heard over the years of of men and women just picking up the Bible and reading it. Like reading the gospel of John, for example, and then coming to faith in, in Christ like just reading it, whether it's a Bible in a hotel room or maybe it's a college student who they've packed it, they've taken it to college with them. They're like, Or maybe mom and dad just slipped it in there along the way and they're like, I don't even know why I have this with me. But then that Friday night of desperation comes and they pick up the Bible. They don't even know why they're picking up the Bible, but they pick up the Bible and they begin to read it. And wow, the Lord begins to work through their life through the power of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to see the truths that they've never seen before. Could be a, a letter that you write to a loved one. Could be sign language. You ever thought about that? Do you know one of the most unreached people groups on the planet is the deaf population? Deaf. We, we we're we're a country that is very um, compatible to those with disabilities as best we can. We still have our limitations in so many ways, but I mean like. It, it, If you're a deaf population, you understand clearly what's going on with COVID because everybody has like an interpreter on the screen, right? That doesn't happen that way around the rest of the world. There are people who literally have never heard the gospel because they cannot hear. They're they're isolated from their communities. And so we have missionaries who are intentionally going into deaf populations around the world to share the gospel with them through sign language. So hearing can involve any number of forms of communication, but hearing is absolutely essential to believing. As Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It doesn't come any other way. Now, again, because we don't want to assume anything in this series, we have to ask what exactly are they hearing? What are we hearing? What are we proclaiming? And the simple answer is the gospel. It's the gospel. Gospel being a word that literally means good news. And it's news like encapsulating the news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures. We're saved by believing this news, which brings us to point number two. In order to be redeemed, you must believe the gospel. In order to be redeemed, you must believe the gospel. Not just believing something arbitrary, you're believing the gospel. So the gospel is preached and an adjusted gospel is proclaimed. We may even use the word Share. I personally tend to try to lean away from the, using the word share, though I find myself saying it quite often. Because, but I, I lean away from it because it's more than just sharing. We're not like just sharing a piece of advice here. I'm not just sharing like a, a recipe, but we're calling the one hearing to believe. There's a means of persuasion. There's a prayerful pleading that is taking place. We want the one who's hearing to believe and respond to what, what we're presenting. But here's the thing. One cannot believe if they've never heard. Which, yes, brings about all kinds of emotional questions. Like, what about the person who never hears? Because that's not a hypothetical scenario. That's not just kind of something you talk about in a case study or in a class. It's real. Billions of people all over the world who have yet to ever hear the gospel. So what happens to them when they die? You can feel the emotional tension there already, right? At least I hope you do. And the simple and highly emotional answer is they will receive their just and due penalty of God's eternal judgment. Now, it's not because they've never heard. Let's be clear. They're not judged because they've never heard. No, that would be unjust. God doesn't punish or judge anyone For not hearing. He judges on the basis of our sin. We're going to to look at this in greater detail in, in coming weeks. But remember, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All includes all. There are no innocent people in the world. None. Every single last person deserves to go to hell. Everyone. And it's only by God's grace that anyone is saved. And so in his eternal plan, how has God chosen to save sinners? Through hearing and responding in faith to the gospel. Thus the need for missions, thus the need for evangelism. So then the question we naturally have here with that, and we're thinking through this is, okay, okay, how does this work? Because it seems like really simplistic in one way and overly complex in another. How does our evangelism, how does our missions, our our proclaiming the good news work and bringing about belief? Well, first we need to understand, and this is a big thing to understand, that our words, no matter how persuasive, cannot bring someone from spiritual death to, to life in Christ. There is absolutely nothing we can do to manufacture the new birth. Our words, no matter how eloquent, no matter how persuasive, cannot bring somebody to saving faith in Christ, which can obviously leave us being like, okay, then what's the purpose of hearing then? Well, it's part of God's eternal plan. Christians proclaim the gospel clearly, faithfully, simply, we don't have to overcomplicate this message. God is holy creator. He has creator rights over everything. And we as the creation have sinned against him. And as a result of our sin, we deserve his just and eternal judgment of hell. Ah, but through Christ, through faith in Christ, there is salvation for everyone who believes. And then the Holy Spirit working through this message of truth brings forth new life, brings forth belief, providing a clear-headed conscience embrace of the good news. A repentance, I am a sinner and I need a savior and Christ alone is my only hope in life and in death. So this is not merely a fact to be believed, but a treasure to be embraced. A treasure, a treasuring of Christ and the hope that is found in, in Him, in Him alone. There is nothing that gives me more confidence, friends, in preaching or in evangelism than understanding the Spirit's work in evangelism, in in salvation, understanding God's work in salvation. I know here's my responsibility, our responsibility, here's God's responsibility. We do our part. He does his part, which is absolutely everything in bringing about salvation. So though I plead with you to believe, I plead with you to respond to the gospel. It is not in my power to make it happen. Like I've said it before. Anything I or anyone else can talk you into, somebody else can come along and talk you out of. It is the spirit who brings new life. And you know what, church? It's because of this. I can sleep really, really well at night. Really well at night because of this doctrine. So, thinking this through, there are essentially three parties involved in bringing forth belief. Obviously, the overarching, the Holy Spirit. But there's the proclaimer of the good news, right? Then there's the hearer of the good news. And then there's the the Holy Spirit. What's the responsibility of the proclaimer? To proclaim, call to respond. What's the responsibility of the hearer? To believe but that can't happen apart from the work of the spirit who brings new life and who makes belief possible. Now here's the often debated question. What comes first belief or new life? I'll be honest. I believe it's simultaneous. Simultaneously happens. Now, you're sitting there and you're really kind of processing this and you're having a hard time thinking about how one thing can cause another thing and yet both of them are happening at the same time, yeah, you're not alone, right? That, that, that's why this is an often debated question. But here's an illustration. Think about fire for a moment. Think about specifically, let's think about fire and heat or fire and light as an example. The instant there is fire, there is What? There's heat. The instant there is fire, there is light. But does the heat cause the fire? Or does the light cause the fire? No, no. The the fire brings forth the heat and the light, and yet it does so simultaneously. The same is true with hearing and believing and the Spirit bringing forth new life. The hearing now, it, it can take place at any time. You know, it actually may be something that sits as a ticking time bomb. You may hear a message. This is, again, what brings me confidence of knowing like, you, you plant these seeds and you plant these little time bombs, if you will, and you have no control of whether they're ever going to go off. But then, like a decade later, a year later, a week later, whenever the Lord sees fit, it's like, boom! The bomb of belief goes off. Ah, And what comes forth when the Spirit ignites that balm of belief? Belief comes forth. New life comes forth. It's the work of the Spirit in salvation. God choosing, the Son redeeming those who God has chosen, and the Spirit bringing new life to the chosen. So we plant and we water and we trust God to give the growth in his time. We scatter the seed throughout the field, and man, we just scatter the seed as much as we possibly can. And it's God who causes it to spring forth and produce fruit. John chapter three, verse eight the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, plain and simple, not everyone who hears will believe, but they cannot believe if they do not hear. And if they do not believe, or if they do believe, I say that, if they do believe, it is 100% the work of the spirit. Our unbelief is completely upon us. That's who we are by nature. But belief is the grace of God which brings us to point number 3 if you're redeemed you have been sealed with the promised holy spirit if you if you're redeemed you've been sealed with the promised holy spirit now what does this mean well a seal is a mark of ownership mark of authenticity could be a wax seal on, on, on a letter or, or the sealment of, uh, on a legal document helping to secure, uh, keep it secure until its delivery. It's a means of, of ensuring safe delivery. It's a, it's a means of marking ownership. Now, of course, a, a seal on a letter or a document is an external marker, just like a brand on a cow, right? You know who it belongs to. Easy for all to, to see. But our, our seal as Christians is different. Our seal as Christians is internal. God's, God placing his seal on our hearts and, and marking us as belonging to him. And it too is visible for all to see. And though it's on our hearts, the seal is visible for all to see. As it is the spirit who both brings new life and makes the Christian life possible. See, we're not saved by our works. Let's be very clear. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But because we're saved, because we have the Spirit, we produce good works through the Spirit working within us. Good works that align with the will of God. World sees these works, our life in Christ. And they say, I know this person belongs to God. There's evidence of new life. Friends, can that be said of you? Is there evidence of, of new life? Well, maybe you're wondering what, what all this looks like and how you can answer that question honestly. It's a common question. How can I know for sure that I, that I have the Spirit? Which is the same thing as asking, like, how do I know if I'm saved? And if you really want to explore this, this question, I, I encourage you to read the, the book of 1 John but since we don't have time to do that now, here here are ten pieces of evidence from First John. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the right, kind of if you make it to Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, but it's back that direction there. First John, get to Hebrews, keep on going uh, there. First John, we have got ten starting with, and here's a here's a helpful way to take notes here. All of them are going to start with the same thing. All right. Those who are sealed with the spirit, right? You can just write that part down. Those who are sealed with the spirit, and then you can just kind of jot down the other little parts as we go. It's gonna make note-taking a whole lot easier. Otherwise, you will not be able to keep up. Ready? All right. Those who are sealed with the spirit, keep God's commandments. 1 John chapter two, verses three and four. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. Okay, that's pretty helpful. How do I know I come to know him? All right, here's how. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Number two, those who are sealed with the spirit walk as Christ walked. Those who are sealed with the spirit walk as Christ walked. Chapter two, verses five and six. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, in which Christ walked. Number three, those who are sealed with the Spirit love others. 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death chapter 4 verse 20 if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar number four those who are sealed with the spirit don't love the world first john chapter 2 verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him. Number five, those who are sealed with the spirit confess the son and are united in him. Those who are sealed with the spirit confess the son and are united in him. First John chapter four, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. Chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Number 6. Those who are sealed with the Spirit practice righteousness. Those who are sealed with the Spirit practice righteousness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You don't practice righteousness, you are not born of him. Number seven, those who are sealed with the Spirit don't make a practice of sinning. Verse John chapter 3, verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verses 9 and 10, Those who are sealed with the Spirit have the Spirit. First John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. Meaning, every believer has the Spirit in full at the moment they are saved. Number nine: Those who are sealed with the Spirit believe that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Number 10, those who are sealed with the Spirit overcome the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith in who? faith in christ church we we won't live sinless lives sadly we will sin praise god we have an advocate for when we do and when we do we will not be content to remain in our sin because the spirit will not allow us to remain content in our sin. See, from the moment we come to faith, we are sealed. We are bought. We belong to Christ. We are children of God. And just like a child begins to take on the image of their parents, whether good or bad, right? As we grow up, we take on the image of our parents. We who are in Christ not only take upon the family name of Christian, we begin to reflect Christ to the world and we're gonna do so for the rest of our life through the work of the Spirit. Why? Because once we're sealed with the Spirit, we who are truly in Christ can never fall away. We can only grow in Christ-likeness. As the Spirit not only seals, but guarantees we will always be a child of God. As verse 14 in Ephesians says, in reference to the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is, receive our inheritance in full. It's the promise that all who are truly in Christ will remain in Christ forever to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we give you praise this morning for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives. And I pray we who are in Christ will continue through the work of the Spirit, continue to faithfully grow in Christ's likeness and live our lives to the praise of your glorious grace for it's in Jesus name we pray amen church